I think that kind of speaks to another thing that, that kind of stuck with me, which is be nice to assistant editors. Because <laughs> sure. you never know. One day that assistant editor might be an editor or, or your boss or a client. So... <laughs> Welcome to The Cutdown, a podcast all about the art of trailer editing. This is episode number 13. I'm Derek Liu. And I'm Rick Thomas. And today we're going to talk about first a number of new trailers that came out. And we're also going to talk about being assistant editors at trailer houses and sort of how those experiences immersed us in the world of trailers and also taught us uh, certain things that maybe carried over and helped us as editors. Yeah, and I just wanted to add a note at the top of this. Uh, I just wanted to kind of say again our kind of mission statement of this podcast. A lot of times trailer reviews are looking at the film itself and not looking at the construction of the trailer. Um, and that's what we try to do on this podcast. So when we're reviewing things, we aren't necessarily saying, hey, that film looks great. We're saying, okay, this is what the trailer's doing in its sound design and its uh, construction and its copy and really appreciating the, the form of the editorial. Um, which segues well into the first trailer, a big, big old hunk of a trailer at three minutes long. It is the most trailer. It is the most. It's full trailer. Um, in fact, what was it? Uh, on um, This went live on the Netflix YouTube account, but also on Ryan Reynolds' YouTube account because post-Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds is now the, um, the kind of meta-marketing king. Uh, and the comment... What was the comment underneath his uh, his tagline for this? Yeah, so on Ryan Reynolds' YouTube channel version of this trailer, the description says, how much Michael Bay can one movie have? Yes. Yes. We are, of course, talking about the trailer for Six Underground, the new Netflix film from Michael Bay. How's it going over there? You're really ruining my flow right now. You know that. This really looks like the biggest film that Netflix have made. Yeah, I think the budget is something like $150 million. Uh, and then they decided to make their trailer about uh, three minutes long, which is uh, unusual um, in the industry. Yeah, but I mean, you know, they're only going online. So um, I guess maybe they could have done a cut down if they're playing this trailer theatrically. But, you know, when you're online, you, there are, there's no barrier to having a three minute trailer. Uh, what, what was your first impression of this trailer? It's a lot. It's a lot to kind of break down. Like there's a there's a lot going on um, in a good way. I mean, I don't know what you, you know, it's a Michael Bay film. Don't know what you expect. You know, he's still got his explosions that look like fireworks and a lot of explosions and a lot of kind of wisecracking and, and stuff like that. Yeah. There are a couple of moments, though, that I want to kind of isolate out um, editorially uh, from this. And the first thing is the kind of cold open, which comes before the, the Michael Bay card. Um, and I just wanted to use this as a kind of, talking point to how the start of trailers and, and kind of cold opens in general are supposed to kind of orient you a bit or give you a kind of like a James Bond pre-credit sequence, give you a kind of taste of stuff. This one gets a lot of information in there. It shows that Ryan Reynolds there. It kind of sets up that there's a heist. Uh, you see probably every kind of main character in there. Um, but there were a couple, a couple of things that just threw me, one of which was that it set up this kind of world of this heist with cranes and things like that. And then all of a sudden there were some daytime shots so yeah, it just took me a while to kind of understand what the what the rules were. How about you? How do you mean what the rules were? Like what were the characters doing or Yeah, kind of what the rules of what we're seeing here. I guess kind of what picture are they painting here? What's the geography 
how do the characters relate to each other? Who's talking to who? Um, where are we? What are we seeing? What are the stakes? You know, there's a lot to take in. But in a way, it's kind of a, a mood board kind of front. You know, you get that Ryan Reynolds is in it. You get that there's a kind of heist. You see some big, huge shots and uh, some characters in masks. And I guess you're kind of intrigued. Yeah, I would say my general impression of this trailer is that it has a lot of texture, but very, very little context. So I feel like a lot of the shots in this opening are framed in a way where, or the, a lot of the characters in this opening are framed in a way where it looks like they're villainous, but from the rest of the trailer, it seems like, I guess, that they're protagonists. So that's really what confused me, especially these, these, uh, these neon masks. They just look very much like, you know, these are bad guy characters. Uh, so I think throughout the whole thing, I was thinking to myself, are these anti-heroes? Are they, are, are, am I supposed to be rooting for them? I think that kind of plays, though, into, into what they are. Like, they're kind of outlaws because the story goes on to kind of explain in a couple of bits, these guys seem to all be legally dead, therefore they can get away with dispatching bad guys was the, the story that I got away. So, so in a way, they kind of are anti-heroes and the bad guy, but also the good guy. I don't know. For me, it didn't really endear me to them i don't know if it's supposed to but i just i was having trouble sympathizing with them at all so i was just thinking okay you know i'm just going to take this trailer as what it is which is this michael bay movie which it's saying okay explosions cars and guns and all these these set piece moments i guess i would say the trailer is doing what it set out to do which is to show texture as far as i can tell from uh the editing Maybe it doesn't really care about the things that I care, so I sh- maybe I shouldn't be judging it on those uh, grounds. So if it has this mission statement of you know texture and music videos and explosions, then it's really well done. It's like really well cut to the music, and um, it's very exciting. Because I think a lot about story and what story is being told to me in the context of the trailer. Um, so uh, I got a little hung up on that. <laughs> But then also you're right. No, you're absolutely right that the that you should get you should care about these protagonists. So in a, in that case, this trailer is not doing its job. But um, there were a couple of moments of sound design um, that I wanted to talk about in here uh, while we're talking about the kind of the artistry of how it's cut. Um, and there's one bit where Ryan Reynolds says, "Hit it," or "Let's go," or something in that in that kind of cold open. And then there's a massive sub drop and also a rise going on at the same time. Hit it. It's been done quite a lot, but I think it's done really successfully here where you've got that one kind of descending thing and one kind of climbing thing, and it's just really interesting. Um, There's also someone opens their eyes and there's a click and a glass sound, uh, which I thought was great. And also one thing that I really liked in the middle of this kind of huge trailer, there's a bit of an emotional drop down um, again when they talk about being dead. And there's just one shot of kind of two hands touching, which really stuck with me in this kind of a, a emotional section. So I, I really like the kind of visual storytelling. There's actually a lot of visual storytelling in here because there isn't a huge amount of narrative storytelling. In regards to the sound design, I would say this is a good example of... 
the most trailer sound design. Um, I think this could be used basically as a means to sell trailer sound effects libraries. <laughs> so if you're curious about uh, trailer sound design and how it works in the context of certain shots, this would probably be a good one to study. Um, these are definitely the sort of sounds where if I get a sound effects library and listen through, I think, okay, well, these sounds are for a Michael Bay movie. So the person who made this basically just got to open the whole library and say, yep, I can use any of these right now because this is exactly what these were made for. Yeah, it's the whole toolbox, Uh, especially the moment with the magnet where it kind of slows down. Welcome to the world's biggest magnet. Are you out of your mind? Grenade! It's kind of all sound design because, you know, you're communicating a thing which is quite hard to communicate. I mean, it's a magnet, so lots of kind of metal flies towards it, but then the kind of shot slows down and it's all the sound design there that is helping the kind of storytelling of these guys getting sucked towards this big magnet. Yeah, and I think the other point about the the storytelling or the lack of storytelling um, in terms of the context is I think that... The set piece moment, so they have this um, this pool shattering on the skyscraper, and then they have the magnet moment. For those moments, they didn't do a lot for me. I think because of a lack of context, they were just since they were they just felt like a little bit random. They're just there to just show the set piece moments, but without the context of me being sympathetic to the characters or knowing what was the cir- uh, circumstance in these moments. It just didn't land for me. I'd be curious to watch the film and see what those scenes are all about and if there was a way to set it up a little bit. It made me think a little bit of how Jackie Chan thinks about fight scenes. He says, oh, if you have a proper story to context for why they're fighting, then it makes it interesting. Yeah, uh, what is it? It's the Hitchcock thing of... um a shot of two people chatting on a train isn't interesting, but if you show the if you show a bomb under the table and then you show the two people chatting, then it is interesting. I'm massively paraphrasing, and I probably got that completely wrong, but you know that's that's the crux of it. Yeah, I, that's the that's the Michael Bay condensing of of that concept. Um, but while we're talking about uh, Ryan Reynolds doing great service two things um a trailer just came out a kind of trailer i think it's a trailer either way it's it's an advertisement it is an advertisement and it kind of follows on from what we were talking about last week with um the reinvention of teaser trailers um and it is this kind of behind the scenes cast sitting down and discussing how they're really excited to work with the director sean levy and you've got um the dude from stranger things and Jodie Comer from Killing Eve and uh, Ryan Reynolds and Taika Waititi. It starts quite straight. This genre is super exciting to me. Like an absolute dream, really. I love working with Sean, obviously. Uh, I've worked with him on Stranger Things and he's just amazing. And then at some point, Ryan Reynolds and Taika Waititi insist that they've never worked together and everyone kind of points out that they work together on Green Lantern and then they run away and... And now to finally have a chance to work together for the first time ever in, in both of our lives is, um, I mean, I'm super stoked about that. Be in the same room. Green Lantern. Yeah, that would, yeah. Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. That, you're yeah. thinking of... Um... And I thought it was really successful to get the name of the movie out and the cast, and I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, it was just another opportunity for Ryan Reynolds to play the ongoing joke that 
the Green Lantern movie just never happened. Yeah, but this was in a week where um, I think probably the best advertising that I've seen for the film 1917, I mean, the trailers have been really good, but um, again, kind of like Cats came out with a behind-the-scenes piece before the trailer. Um, 1917 came out with a behind-the-scenes piece that it elaborated on um, how it was a kind of one-shot film. From the very beginning, I felt this movie should be told in real time. Every step of the journey, breathing every breath with these men, felt integral. And there is no better way to tell the story than with one continuous shot. And that was a really kind of interesting bit of information for me, and it's probably the thing that I've latched onto that says, oh, you know, I really want to go and see this film. Um, but it's interesting that they've never kind of laid it out in the trailers. So a behind-the-scenes piece is the kind of perfect forum for that. Um, whereas, you know, a trailer that said Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins set out to immerse you in the, wo- the world of World War One with a, a one-shot piece isn't as good as kind of going in through the characters. Yeah, um, that behind-the-scenes video definitely made me want to see the movie. Uh, and, and my initial reaction was, why didn't you say that in the first place? Um, but... It makes sense that they would, yeah, like you said, they would start with the story and then expand upon uh, the thing later. Because I think even if they said in the context of the trailer, you know, one single continuous take, it might take away from the story, basically. And especially if it's a sensitive topic, like a like a war film, it would be putting the high, the focus on the filmmakers and not the the story and the, the predicament that the characters are in. Yeah, well, there's two references I would pull for that. Um, um, one is uh, They Will Not Grow Old, um, which is very much talking about the kind of technology that's brought the stories to life because um, it's this fantastic thing where Peter Jackson um, and all the means at his disposal recreated this amazing First World War footage, colorized it, gave it good sound design, got it back to the right frame rate, kind of filled in the missing frames, reconstructed it to get this amazing kind of immersive experience of that wasn't able to be captured at the time with cameras. Um, and the traders for that very much focused on the process because it was kind of amazing. Sort of related, I remember the trailer for Russian Ark, which was also a, a one-take movie. I think the trailer for that did mention that it's one single take. I think... They said that because that's the only thing I know about that movie at all. <laughs> Not only is Russian Ark the longest shot in film history, it is also the first feature film ever created in a single take. I mean, that's the selling point for Russian Ark, because, you know, if it's just a story about kind of Russian aristocracy, then maybe uh, less people will see it. Um, same with uh, Boyhood, actually. I worked at the company where the Boyhood trailer was done and we focused on the cinematic experience of Richard Linklater filming this over 10 years because that was the thing that everyone knew about Boyhood and it was really interesting when you when you saw that actor do it and it and it felt right to kind of point that out. And also that's a film that is story-light. It's this kind of tapestry of a film um, and the story is basically one boy growing up. So uh, it felt all right to kind of frame that within how they made the film too. So following on from Free Guy, uh, we're freeing Guy Ritchie with uh, the trailer for The Gentleman, which follows Hot on the Hills of Aladdin. Um, I think he's done it as a kind of palate cleanser to get back to his um, Cockney roots. I want you to imagine a character. Your boss, Mickey Pearson. You're too smart to be blackmailing us, Fletcher. Yeah. 
So yeah, what did you think of this one? I think this trailer pairs well with the Six Underground trailer, by which what I mean is this is another trailer where I feel like they didn't give a lot of story context and they focused on, you know, this is a Guy Ritchie film. They, they say it right from the very beginning from Guy Ritchie and then they focus on, you know, Snatch and Sherlock Holmes for their, their title card. And it's just a lot of Guy Ritchie moments that you would expect from a Guy Ritchie film of this sort. And from that perspective, I'd say it's totally successful. I thought that the, the story structure of using Hugh Grant's voiceover was a little bit confusing to me, which, you know, Hugh Grant is telling the story of what's going on and they, they constantly cut back to him. And I feel like just cutting back to him so often, it sort of took me out of the story that he's telling. I felt like maybe if he was a little bit more voiceover-like, then it might have been smoother for me. You mean so you, uh, so you didn't come back and see him quite so often? Yeah, I think also just because they don't get too specific about what is happening in it, that didn't really help my ability to consume what is going on. So at a certain point, I just had to say, okay, you know what? This is a Guy Ritchie movie, and I should be watching this to think, are there Guy Ritchie moments in this movie? And there totally are. Yeah, I actually really liked the uh, Hugh Grant device because it felt like that kind of gift to trailer editors when you've got someone describing the plot and you can kind of cut away and show the things that it's talking about, especially when, you know, this is in Guy Ritchie style, this is quite a convoluted plot. To, so to have someone kind of taking you through, um, I think the difficulty might come when that person is also kind of involved in the story themselves and, mm. you know, you might lose the thread. But I kind of stuck with it and I almost felt like I would have been happy if that had been the whole trailer instead of kind of then the music kicks off into um, Sunshine of Your Love and kind of opens up the story. But by then, the Hugh Grant thing is done. Well, I don't know if if more context of who Hugh Grant was would actually help this, but that was just one of my impulse reactions, thinking, okay, how does he fit into the story, and why is it important that he's telling this story? Um, I could be overthinking this right now. Um, But yeah, I was just kind of lost uh, through a lot of this. I actually, I really liked this for um, the second the rhythmic editing started i thought oh maybe this is an av squad trailer and it turns out it is you know it starts with um kind of halfway through hugh grant's introductory monologue they um the rhythm the kind of ticking rhythm starts and someone's high heels go uh, and then you've got people putting on jackets rhythmically and splats of blood going um people smoking and and that kind of sound design filling filling the world and the plot begins to thicken Now, I can't be specific about the heroes and zeros, but our protagonist is a hungry animal. Again, yeah, feels really rhythmic and and successful. And um, the favourite bit, something similar to how I really liked the shot of the two hands touching in the Six Underground trailer, um, I really liked the shot of some bacon going on a grill. In the jungle. There's something about it. I think maybe someone's talking about getting killed or something or or a lot of lives are going to get lost and some bacon sizzles down. And I just thought that was really, really lovely kind of visual storytelling. I think my favorite moment was the door knocking part. How do they find it? I'll make inquiries. Where there's just some door knocking that is uh, rhythmically cut to the music, which it almost it almost felt like it was going to do a it was going to do a serious man sort of thing where it would was going to loop, but it just ended up being this small little moment, which uh, I enjoyed that part. So yeah, check out the trailers for Six Underground, Free Guy, The Gentleman. Also, there's a new Kingman uh, Kingsman trailer set out to, uh, set to War Pigs. Um, so a good 
good couple of weeks for traders. Oh, and we didn't mention, I think Six Underground trailer was edited by Rogue Planet. Yes. We're going to try to be better about crediting uh, trailer houses when we talk about the trailers. Yeah, actually, Michael Bay called them out in his Instagram posts. So uh, so <laughs> the trailer industry is going, uh, is going really mainstream. I think that's probably testament to the time that went into that piece. <laughs> right. All right. So those are the trailers for this week. And now let's get to our topic, which is uh, assistant editors. It's been quite a while since Rick and I have been assistant editors. So uh, our experience will not entirely overlap with what I imagine assistant editors do nowadays, just the certain realities uh, like um, working off of tape. But anyway, so the reason I wanted to talk about this was just because I think back to when I was an assistant editor um, and just how much I learned from even just a week being an assistant editor or an intern at a trailer house and just having this world of trailers just open up to me and learning about all the things. Um, And also I wanted to talk about this because I imagine there might be some people out there who are interested in becoming trailer editors and maybe working their way from the ground up and, uh, give them some tips for things that they should be prepared for and just get an idea of what the job is like. I'll ask you, what are the first things that you remember doing as an assistant at a trailer house? Yeah. What do I remember? I remember making tea for all the editors. That's interesting. (laughs) I remember um, in my interview, uh, the person who was, um, so I kind of skipped the runner slash driver stage and I went straight in as uh, a tape operator slash assistant editor. Um, and I remember in my interview, the guy who I was replacing, who had become an editor, who I actually work with now, 15 years later, <laughs> um, we're editors at the same company. Um, he told me to never get caught with your feet up. Um, and that's the kind of philosophy that I live I live with to this day, you know, always kind of work hard and, and keep on trucking. I also got told to make sure that the editors were watered and fed. So I would always go around and uh, I, I got my. I wrote down in my first week, in my kind of booklet of jobs to do, I had everyone's tea order and I used to go around and check that everyone had tea. When you were just talking about kind of, you know, even with just kind of in that first week, like learning stuff, I remember I used to, I just kind of help the editors get things onto tape and DVD and everything because they were literally going out um and i remember after we did that i would have to you know quality control check the things before they went to the client and uh i remember seeing some tv spots for the film sideways that was in my first week and i I was looking at it and one of the graphics said total films magazine and i thought that's interesting i've never heard of total films magazine i turned to the account manager and i said isn't that supposed to be total film magazine and they said Yes, it is. And they made the editor change it, <laughs> the editor and the graphic artist. So I was like, oh, wow, I've, I've like, I didn't know. That, I've, I've influenced know. something. Yeah. And, and not only that, that, you know, kind of that level of detail and attention and not letting things go. And also it, it becomes easier with knowledge to be able to kind of stick your hand above the parapet and say, oh, hold on, isn't that supposed to be doing this? But um, so obviously that comes with experience, but it is good to kind of have confidence to say, to check mistakes because you've got to be fastidious that's the thing that i remember about being an assistant from my first week how about you what was your thrown in at the deep end experience well i wasn't i wouldn't say they threw me in the deep end because i started as an intern so i remember there being a lot of times when i didn't have anything to do um but some of the first things that i had to do were fill out music cue sheets which basically music cue sheets are just 
like an Excel sheet, which lists out every single bit of music or sound effects which require specific licensing. So for a trailer or a TV spot, it could be, you know, it could be three pieces of music and a bunch of sound effects, or it could be like a dozen pieces of music. So I had to get the CDs out and write down the publisher and exactly how many seconds every single thing was used for. And then also that's when I learned about how there might be some situations where there's a sequence that was particularly complicated and I had to find like a, a mixed down sequence which contained several, several more music cues or sound effects because at the time Avid could only have eight tracks of audio uh, output. So what the editors would do sometimes would just take a whole bunch of sound effects that they had put together with music and then mix it down to a separate audio file and then hopefully keep that sequence somewhere so then that when it came time to do music cue sheets, I could look up the music that was in there. Did you know Avid before that? That sounds like that was actually probably a really good way to learn Avid, you know, having to dive into people's sequences. Uh, I learned a little bit of Avid at college, but the way that I was taught it was just them practically reading the manual to me, which was the most ineffective way to possibly learn Avid. Uh, just, I remember just falling asleep. Mostly it was a Final Cut Pro 7 person in college, just because that's a, I worked at a computer lab. But anyway, I learned most of what I know about Avid from that job. But I remember the other thing that was really uh, a big moment for me when I was an intern was just hearing them read the trailer narrators you know they would just call over on the with the isdn line and they're just you know shooting the breeze with the trailer narrators who have you know their deep sonorous voices and they're just like oh hey what's going on i'm like oh my god they just they just talk normally too <laughs> i mean they still sounded like their their voices uh on the trailers but it was just funny to hear them say basically anything other than trailer copy and that was a really delightful moment for me. I just remember just smiling ear to ear when I heard that. Yeah, there's something unique probably about getting into the trailer business compared to other kind of assistant editor jobs where every once in a while a bit of kind of behind the scenes information will reveal itself for the first time and you go, oh wow, that's how they do that. And uh... Yeah, and also just the opportunity to see things that haven't come out yet and have unfinished visual effects, um, that sort of thing. One kind of formative experience that I had, I remember, was um, to that point is I used to do a lot of overcutting. So overcutting is where an editor will make a trailer with kind of one set of materials and then we'll get a new feature in, an updated feature, and we'll have to overcut the trailer. Sometimes it'll be a VFX film and it'll be updated VFX that are going in and sometimes it'll just be a case of, okay, well, we've got the new feature. We need to make sure that all the shots that are in the trailer are in the new feature. And it's always good to kind of keep up with production in terms of what's the most recent thing. So basically it's a lot of work to just end up with what you've already got. And it was a really good way of learning Avid. So I would literally kind of do it frame for frame and I'd kind of realize what the editors were doing. And all of a sudden that shot is from an entirely different part of the feature. And how have they done that? Oh, it's because they need a reaction shot there. It was a really good lesson in kind of reverse engineering from a picture point of view as well, not even what you were talking about with the kind of looking at all the sound design that's been done. Um, and okay, they've taken a couple of frames out of this to speed it up, or they've actually done a speed up. And I remember it was the trailer for Pride and Prejudice, the, uh, the Joe Wright film from, I think, 2005. I was working with this editor who was amazing and thought in a kind of very much design kind of way. So he would layer up shots that faded into shots and 
transitioned and kind of edge wiped and doors opened when they weren't supposed to open so they were retimed and they were edge- there was so much kind of effect work there and i had to kind of work out my own ways of doing it because you couldn't just kind of copy the effects that he done to recreate it you had to kind of start from scratch and it was a real kind of trial by fire lesson for this quite simple thing but that's something that assistant editors still do today is a a lot of kind of overcutting and checking material we called it conforming which i don't know if that's the proper term because i think conforming is used in other contexts in trailer editing or finishing um but yeah basically another reason to do it is just the when they're making the final version of the trailer the sequence needs to reference like the most current version and the the current version's time code that sort of thing or the the key code and actually that whole process is the reason that to this day the replace edit shortcut in avid uh, and also um, like Premiere and Final Cut 7 is like the one that if it's not in a new editing program, I just won't use it because it's so handy to just be able to match one shot in a, a different version of a feature or something like that to what's already in the sequence. So that's one reason I'm not on Final Cut Pro 10 or even considering it. Yeah, it's a really interesting. There's a there's a very specific skill to being able to find the exact frame that you're looking for in an entire feature. And you can even get to the shot. And sometimes if you're looking at dailies, you know, uh, there's a minute long take and you know it's that take, but you don't know exactly where the shot is. And you can kind of gang the shots together so the source runs at the same time as your, your kind of timeline. Um, and I used to remember doing a kind of magic eye where I would you know magic eye pictures where you kind of look through them and they make a 3d a 3d castle or something oh oh yeah yeah i know what you mean like the yeah when you cross your eyes and then it forms a 3d image yeah so i used to cross my eyes <laughs> to get the picture in the so in an editing process you're kind of source so the thing that you're cutting or the feature or something like that will be on the left of the screen and then your timeline showing the shots that you're working on your timeline will be on the right and I used to kind of cross my eyes to check, to put those two images together to check that I had found exactly the right frame. That's really funny. So I probably gave myself a lot of headaches, but um, <laughs> that's how I used to do it. Actually, the other thing I took from that experience was just learning to use clip colors all the time because, say, a new feature came in, um, I would I would color that feature as orange and... I would have to make the whole sequence orange, basically. And then when I was finally done, it was just really satisfying to just see, like, oh, all the clips are replaced now. It's all new footage. (laughs) Yeah, all of this speaks to a kind of that assistant editor thing, which more so than trailer editors, because I say we still do this as well, but as an assistant editor, you really match, you really mix tech with creativity. It's that perfect balance between having to be really organized and, like you say, with clip colors and finding the right sources and not making mistakes and um, that kind of working knowledge of time codes and and how those editing programs work in a variety of things and codecs and um, how to make the perfect quick time because the client has to see it on their laptop and it can only be three megabytes big <laughs> um, but it also has to look as good as possible you know th- those kind of things matched with the kind of creativity is um, is the essence of that job yeah they're basically you know, an assistant editor is just there to do everything that an editor just can't be bothered to do because they're worried about or they're constantly thinking about the cut and the, you know, the story and all that sort of thing. But they can't be bothered to worry about these little things. So 
when I describe it to other people, I just say, yeah, it's just everything that is the menial, less interesting, very detail-oriented part of the process. But it's actually, I, I, I think that editors who haven't gone through that process, um, I feel like are at a disadvantage because there are just so many good skills that you learn in that job. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I, I'm not sure it's can't be bothered, but um, yeah, maybe you, you have less time to to do those things once you get to the to the point of cutting. But yeah, it's totally, I would be hesitant about an editor who hadn't gone through that process because I'd say, well, you know, if you don't know where everything's come from and where it's going, you're not applying that knowledge to what you're cutting and, and what you're doing may not be possible, you know. Yeah. And also the, the funny thing was some editors that I worked with, they were really amazingly fast at editing and using Avid. And, you know, the people always talk about the Avid editor who doesn't need to touch the mouse at all. But maybe they couldn't do something like bookmark a web page. Their, their skills are so laser focused on editing that everything else is something that they need an assistant editor to help them with. Yes, tech support is also a, a thing that assistant editors frequently have to do and troubleshooting as well. And often it's that kind of it's that kind of job where if you're doing your job well, nobody thanks you. <laughs> and if you're do, if you're doing your job badly, you know, you potentially made a mistake that costs a lot of money or um, annoys a client or, you know, it's um, it's a tough gig. Did you have a favorite part of the job? Yeah, I um, a lot of things. I really enjoyed overcutting. Um, I I actually I got really obsessive about the tape library at the company where I was. Okay, <laughs> I used to get really up on that. You know that list of things that I had to do. I used to kind of take old tapes and refresh them for new. And I really kind of dug into sorting this kind of chaotic tape library by number and labeling things. And I actually really enjoyed that process. Um, I think that's probably just how my brain works. There were definitely unfavorite bits of that job that I remember kind of sitting in a cold machine room <laughs> um, online and finishing, which is often the bit of the process that gets less kind of time. It's midnight and you've got to kind of quality control this thing and make 10 copies of it. And, you know, it kind of, um, you know, it can be a long day and you've really got to be up on your on your game. How about you? What was your favorite part of it? Um, my favorite part was probably working on dailies projects and getting to make assembly cuts. Um, that was a lot of fun just because I just got to play with the footage from these big blockbuster films. Oh, yeah. And edit a blockbuster film. Yeah. I never did that. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm jealous of uh, you having the chance to do it. I mean, the thing that wasn't so much fun was just the process of getting footage into the computer, because at the time it was a lot of just manually going through tapes to get the, the every single take, whereas now um, it's like on a hard drive already separated by take and everything. So, but yeah, I got to do a lot of assembly cuts where I wasn't actually editing the movie the way I might if I was just actually trying to edit the movie, because the purpose of the assembly cuts not only was to for the editor to see the story, but they also just needed to know every single uh, camera setup that was available. So even if there was if there was a shot, for example, that was shot from close up, medium shot, medium wide, and wide, they need to see every single one of those. Even though maybe if you're just editing the film, you'd only use one of those angles or maybe two of them. So there are a lot of cuts in there that were probably unnecessary. But I also liked trying to work those in in a more organic way so then that it was uh 
good for just watching. I've seen amazing um, assistant editor assemblies of films. I've seen assistant editors assemblies of comedies that are better than the actual film. And it's not just because, in a way, they probably lay every every joke out there as well. But, you know, some, sometimes the decisions they make are just so kind of brilliant. It's a real kind of unappreciated, unappreciated art form. Yeah, one of my proudest moments actually was one of the, the owners of the company was after watching one of my assembly cuts, he just said, you should edit features. I'm like, whoa, cool. <laughs> mm, nice. In a way, though, it's difficult because that's that's so much work, especially like you say, in those in those days to kind of digitize all of that stuff. That must have been hundreds of hours of of work to get that in in real time. Oh, yeah. And then to, to kind of assemble it. And it takes you so long to assemble it that chances are just at the time you're done, you get delivered the feature editor's <laughs> assembly who's been working on it from day one. And all of a sudden, all your work becomes effectively redundant. Yeah, there were definitely some times when a dailies project would just drop on us. You know, sometimes we get footage gradually, but then sometimes they would just send us all the tapes and... At the time, it was we were sort of on the cusp of some technology changes. So when I first started, it was three-quarter inch tape, which is a totally outdated format at this point. And the most advanced format we got at the time was DV cam tapes, which, if you're familiar, was actually not as good an experience digitizing those as uh, analog. But that's it's getting a little in the weeds with the really nerdy stuff. But yeah, whenever a dailies project would just drop on us, sometimes those would be the times when I was just at work until midnight for the entire week. And in some cases went into golden time, which is golden time is after midnight when it got like double pay. And there were times when I think I finished at like, you know, five, six AM and it was a very, very arduous process. Yeah, I remember one time I had to we were we were making a promo for I think the Cannes Film Festival and that had to be done the day and I had to go down to the production to the office where uh, where they were editing the film to kind of recreate it there and it was a kind of all-night process and you emerge in, in the morning and you think, you know, <laughs> I've, really, I've really achieved something here. <laughs> yeah. What would you say were some of the things that you learned the most uh, while in assi- as an assistant or maybe something that sticks with you to this day? Uh, I think I just learned, you know, to work, hard, uh, to work hard, as I was saying earlier, and that's a kind of ethic that, that still sticks with me. It was very hard to let go of my library of tapes um and i and i stuck onto them the way that i um that i reinvent myself for every trailer cut now Hmm. (laughs) um and kind of pluck up the enthusiasm to to kind of go again um how about you i think the things that i learned were just how to be incredibly organized because a lot of the process was organizing footage and things like narration in a way that makes it just super dirt easy for the editor to find what they need. So for example, like just getting uh, trailer narration in, adding little locators to all the the good takes or the, the different lines and color coding them in a certain way so they knew like when it was a different line, that sort of thing. Or just organizing sequences of footage with labeled locators, that sort of thing. And when you look at my projects now, I think I still all those habits carried over of just how I organize my footage. And then also thinking about things like, okay, this sequence, uh, well, this is less case for me now because I work for myself, but I still think about this sequence is going to be passed along to someone else who will have to make sense of this. So for their sake, I try to keep it organized. And whenever I've worked at trailer houses since then, uh, I've 
I've definitely made some finishing editors happy because when they see my sequence and there's like one track of video or maybe two tracks, uh, they're always pleased and they have uh, thanked me for doing that. <laughs> yeah, likewise. I think that kind of speaks to another thing that, that kind of stuck with me, which is be nice to assistant editors. Because <laughs> <laughs> sure. you never know. One day that assistant editor might be an editor or, or your boss or a client. So I'm not, just, you know, just don't just be nice for that reason. But um you know, it's a it's a tough job, and and like I said earlier, it's it sometimes can be a bit of a thankless task. So, mm. and yeah, and to your point about kind of organisation and stuff, I, I guess I kind of learned don't make shortcuts. You know, the work will pay off, and the organisation will pay off, and and just kind of check what you're doing as you as you go, and and again, don't make mistakes or learn from your mistakes because we're all learning. Yes, and looking back, is there anything that you think to yourself? that you wish you had done as an assistant editor, like maybe way to take more advantage of that position? Um, maybe you tell your younger self, why didn't you do this while you're an as an assistant? Uh, not really, because I think, you know, working hard and, and using it as an amazing opportunity to see what the editors were doing and how they were doing it and getting into their sequences and chatting to them and learning from them and having that time without the responsibility of having to cut something myself necessarily, although I was kind of using any spare time I, I had to kind of cut as well. Um, it's a kind of really great opportunity to be surrounded by amazing talent and to get kind of hands-on with what they've done and, and reverse engineer it. Yeah, that's the other fun thing about being an assistant is that you're in the rare position of just getting to see everyone else's work in the sequence because, I mean, unless editors are just looking at each other's timelines, which they totally have the capability of doing in certain cases, um, they might not. So you can just see different styles of like organizing music and sound effects and just seeing what works well for you, which is, I think was an invaluable experience for me. Um, we've gone quite into the weeds into the trailer business. Do you think uh, all of this kind of applies to other assistant jobs and other assistant editor jobs? Like, how do you think they differ? Uh, I can't really speak to feature film editing stuff because I just never worked in that. But I think a lot of the same things about being really, really organized uh, will carry over, uh, especially with like feature films where there's just so much footage that they just need to keep track of um, and really, really know about uh, what is available to them. And I don't know, I guess just having good relationship with your editor and being communicative about what's available. Because also you could have an assistant who just has maybe watched the footage more times than you in some cases. So then there are definitely times when editors said, hey, Derek, do you remember a shot where this is happening or X, Y, Z? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, check out this shot in this bin, that sort of thing. Well, that, I mean, that speaks to something as well, like not aside from the kind of organizational stuff, you know, assistant editors are assistant editors. So, you know, you have a lot of kind of creative roles that assistant editors do as well, like pull a sequence of scale shots or, you know, like find the trader assistants now kind of go through and break down every bit of dialogue. But, um, you know, also they're kind of, Sometimes they're putting graphics in cuts and playing them out. And um, there's a lot of opportunity for that kind of creativity as well in assisting people. Cool. So hopefully that um, gives you an idea of um, what it's like to be an assistant editor from two people who were assistant editors a long time ago. And as always, if you have questions, you can send them to us at cutdown at idlethumbs.net. 
We're on Twitter at CutdownCast, and I am at Derek underscore Lou. And I'm at Rick Thomas. We're part of the Idle Thumbs Network, and if you'd like to discuss this episode with us, you can join us on the Idle Thumbs forums. We have a thread for every single episode. And also, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the show so then that we can get this out to more people. And as always, we want to give you a thank you to our friends at Twisted Jukebox for our intro music. Next time, we're coming back with a special Halloween horror trailer episode. So um, keep an ear out for that. Spooky. <laughs> I want you to do that five times in the, uh, in the next podcast. Thanks for listening. Hit it.